for Yellowstone National Park and the Acoustic Atlas at Montana State University. This is telemetry. Um, so you're brand new, so I'll just, let's, one. oh, you do have I one? Have, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, I'll take an extra. We'll have an okay, extra. Awesome. Um, so you've used them before, right? No, I just got one. Or because... okay. I'm standing on the side of the Loop Road in northern Yellowstone with biologist Andrew Ray and his intern, Casey Fitzgibbon. Before we hike away from the road, Andrew is explaining how to deploy bear spray in case we have a close encounter with a bear. He holds the 8-inch canister of pepper spray in one hand and puts his thumb on the plastic safety. What you need to know, right? You got to take the safety off to be able to pull the trigger, right? And it's not an easy thing to do. But you just lift that up. Yeah. All right. But if something's coming, we're all going to sort of stand abreast. Mm -hmm. We're going to face it. We're going to talk to it. But we're going to have this at the ready. And part of having this at the ready is having your safety off. Okay? Because otherwise you're just pushing down on the safety. Yeah. Andrew spreads out a map across the tailgate of his truck and points to a spot in the mountains above us. So just, uh, just to give you guys a quick um, orientation. So we're here on a loop road, and you know the big blacktail ponds. Um, we're over here, we're gonna hike up, and we're, our goal is to hit site number two there. So it's a nice little pond, uh, sitting on the top of the hill, fantastic views, and it's a great spot for course frogs and tiger salamanders. Andrew is a biologist with the National Park Service's Inventory and Monitoring Division. Yeah, I, I get to spend my summer knee deep and these habitats that most people don't take time to wade into. And I get to explore them. It's May, and snow is still melting off the higher elevations in the park. Hiking up the hill far above the road, we bump into seven or eight elk moving off into the trees. We start talking about how the haunting sounds of elk bugling in the fall are one of the signature sounds of the Rocky Mountains. Yeah, so just as, just as much as that sort of leaves an impression, right? Like that rich, real, authentic sound of wildlife, that's what chorus frogs are. You know, that's the sound of a marsh. If marsh, marshes make sound, that's the sound of a marsh. And Andrew says, we'll know the frogs when we hear them. They sing, sometimes a few at a time, and sometimes a full chorus of many frogs. Moving over the hill, we see a small pond below us. There's a wet grassy area leading into it. We think that we hear a few chorus frogs, but they quiet down as we approach. So they get all shy when you... Yeah, really? but that's the really cool thing about frogs, is once, once you sit there and you sit still, they'll resume what they were doing, you know? So they'll suspend calling for a little bit and go into that cover, duck and cover mode. But uh, once you sit there and they realize you know, you're not a threat, They'll resume what they're doing, so they'll go right back to calling. Huh. Yeah. We sit quietly for a few minutes, and then, one by one, they start singing again. It's pretty fun to try to break it down, right? And like 
sounded like two individuals were down there for a while, then a third chimed in, and then there was at least one here. And um, they're actually really rapid calls, so it's just a, a second or two, and it's like you're running your thumb down the tines of a comb, that sound, right? So you're, you're hearing it, and then they'll do maybe 20 of those, uh, or 25 of those in a minute, so it's just, they're really blasting it out, advertising where they are. Now I hear one over there. Okay, yeah, so what are, what are they doing right now? They're advertising their presence, right? So they're standing, they're, they're, they're ultimately trying to attract a mate. Um, but they're letting other males know they're present, that they've got this spot of the pond. And then they're letting a female know where they are. You know, they're so small, um, um, the vocalizations can help bring in the female. Sometimes the frogs will chorus from April all the way into July. And when they really get going, the sound can be intense, like this. But Andrew says their full sound isn't even the most unusual part about chorus frogs. Later in the year, as late fall comes to Yellowstone... They're looking for a place to go hibernate. We can't see it, obviously, but people who have measured it have started to see changes in their blood chemistry. So essentially, they're creating an antifreeze. Yeah, he said antifreeze. It's a pretty amazing adaptation, allowing them to survive winter in Yellowstone. A winter that can last up to six months. The chorus frogs make their version of antifreeze by producing extra glucose in their blood. And they're in that state as long as it's snowy. But it's absolutely remarkable to me that they overwinter just inches below the surface. And the glucose in their blood protects their cells from collapsing while frozen. And what happens is upwards of two-thirds of their body is frozen. So completely frozen with a heart that has stopped altogether, limbs that don't move, and lungs that don't function. As crazy as that is... Freezing just below the surface turns out to have a big benefit as winter comes to a close. When temperatures start to warm in the spring, the exact opposite happens, right? You start to get a little bit of heart and lung function, and eventually their extremities start to move. And the cool part about that is when you're really close to the surface and you get some warm, early warm spring days, you're the first to respond. If the other species of amphibians are a meter down below the frost line and deep into burrows, the temperatures aren't changing as rapidly as they are at the surface. So these frogs are the first to get into ponds as soon as the ice and snow is off the surface. And so they're, they're in the ponds earliest because they're, at, they're the closest to the surface. This gives the chorus frogs a potential advantage over other amphibians and more time to take advantage of seasonal wetlands that may dry up later in the summer. Yellowstone is home to four other species of amphibians, including western tiger salamanders, Columbia spotted frogs, western toads, and plain spadefoot toads. There is one kind of environment, though, that they all need, shallow water habitats. Biologists are concerned about how much of this habitat will be available in the future. 
As temperatures in the Earth's climate rise, these shallow water habitats could dry up. One of the consequences of a warmer climate is less snow and less water to fill places like this. So the sounds that we hear that are unique to this place and the organisms that, uh, that are present in these habitats, they don't have the ability to escape that. They don't have the ability to move away from that. There will certainly be water and snow in Yellowstone long into the future. But a river with fish or a deep lake with fish is very different than this place that's before us. And so I, I guess the, the thing I want people to think about is there are, there are you know, biodiversity and physical consequences to a warming temperature. And these sort of special habitats that are so biologically rich, they're the most threatened by a changing climate. In one warm, dry year during the monitoring study, the shallow water habitat shrunk by 40%. This led to a 50% reduction in breeding pairs of boreal chorus frogs. Andrew thinks it's likely that we'll see more of that in the future. And the potential for shrinking amphibian habitat isn't just in Yellowstone. I mean, these, these are a group of organisms that were here before dinosaurs were here, okay? And so they're going to be here probably after humans are gone. Um, but I think we can expect a future that has fewer amphibian species um, than we're here historically. And when I say here, I don't necessarily mean Yellowstone, but I mean on Earth. And there are places where there really is a crisis, where amphibians are blinking out. Andrew says that the northern leopard frog, which used to be present just south of Yellowstone in Grand Teton National Park, hasn't been seen in decades. And so understanding what is going on with the remaining amphibians in Yellowstone depends on the data that Andrew and others are collecting. So we study 31 watersheds around Yellowstone and Grand Teton, spread all around the park, or all around both parks. Um, and they represent just, what, 1%? I think there's 3,370 watersheds, and we study just 31 of them. But we revisit those watersheds every year, and we survey all of the ponds in those watersheds. And it's our hope that in another decade or in two decades, then we'll have a data set that really does allow us to talk about long-term change. So while a warm year now may be followed by uh, a cool, wet year, um, our future in this place looks drier, which I think our data suggests means uh, fewer ponds that support breeding chorus frogs, but also fewer ponds that support breeding Columbia spotted frogs, tiger salamanders, and western toads. And while those are our vital signs, there's lots of other wetland-dependent species. Beavers, trumpeter swans, moose, um, bats. Some bats are specialist to wetlands. And so if you have fewer wetlands on the landscape, you have fewer opportunities for those individuals to access water. So while we're studying frogs, we like to remind people that they serve as just a proxy um, for other species that are dependent on wetlands. We're standing near the same small pond when the weather starts to shift. Darker clouds move in off the horizon, and Andrew and Casey and I decide to pack up and head back towards the trucks. As we're getting ready to go, I asked Andrew why they chose boreal chorus frogs to monitor in the first place. We know that amphibians don't occupy every 
wetland in Yellowstone. We'd be naive to think that they do. But we know species like boreal chorus frogs from our monitoring. Um, they occur in, you know, a third uh, of the wetland habitats uh, throughout Yellowstone and Grand Teton. That's high elevation, that's low elevation, that's near a river, that's far away from a river. You know, they, they, can, they can use shallow, uh, isolated habitats. And um, using something that's common and widespread is valuable. And we want to keep those things common. If those things become imperiled, the things that we know historically were common, then that should give us pause. That should make us think about what might be driving that change. Biologists view amphibians as a kind of litmus test for big picture changes in the environment and the overall health of the environment. But Andrew thinks that amphibians have a value beyond just being a vital sign for the park. I think it's relatable because a lot of us have had experiences with amphibians and we can still have those today. But amphibians, like so many organisms, are experiencing declines and it's an opportunity to discuss our impacts, you know, societal impacts on biology, but it's also, you know, a place to talk about discovery and to talk about biodiversity and to talk about climate change and to talk about the value of parks and protected places. So to me, why do we care? Because Yellowstone is a place that's still intact. And it, in terms of the lower 48, um, it's a really special place because it has its full complement of species. And so it's important that we look not only at grizzly bears and wolves and bison, but it's important that we also look at um, frogs and fish and microorganisms. The, the most basic and fundamental part is that it is a part of Yellowstone's biodiversity. For Yellowstone National Park, I'm Scott Christie. This podcast is supported in part by Yellowstone Forever and the Eyes on Yellowstone program. Eyes on Yellowstone is made possible by Canon USA. This program represents the largest corporate donation for wildlife conservation in the park. This is Telemetry. Thanks for listening.